we are with Dieter Mercier. is a film and TV producer, best-selling author, and CEO at Wayne Dancer Films. Dieter has accomplished highly successful films and television series as a best-selling author and award-winning novels. Also, she oversees worldwide business and creative properties for the film and TV development, finance, and production company that has generated over $4 billion in revenue. So, Deet, we are very proud and happy, happy to have you here and to say yes to the podcast. I know you are busy, but thank you for having us today. And Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. And we just want to ask you, what was your passion that drove you into this book business industry? And also now you are a film and TV producer. I love to tell stories. And I think it's a part of who we are. I think most people like to either tell stories or read stories. And I really wanted to tell stories in particular about certain subjects that were important to me, that were things that I was passionate about. And so my uh, first jump into this was really the idea of trying to talk to kids about what I think is important. So one of the very first animated um, series I made was a series on PBS here in the U.S. called Ready, Jet, Go. And it's a series to inspire and ignite kids' interest in space and earth science. And um, I love it. The reason why I love animation in particular is that you get to tell stories that you really can't very easily in live action. So, for example, in Ready, Jet, Go, the main character is an alien that comes from a planet called Bortron 7, and he comes to Earth and makes some friends with some other Earth kids. Well, they have a flying saucer, and they are able to go out into our solar system and explore You really couldn't do that story if you were in, um, you know, live action, but you can do that and really have fun with it in animation. So I love telling stories and I love um, right now focusing on telling stories for kids. And the reason for that, too, is that it's not just kids that watch these TV shows, their parents, their caregivers, their grandparents. Other older kids often watch watch the show with them. So they have an opportunity to like uh, share what they're thinking about, what they're watching with a wider audience. So I really, really, really um, enjoy that aspect of it. Um, again, as Stephanie just mentioned, thank you for being here. We are in Latin America. There's a lot of countries and a lot of people watching this podcast. And something that I would like to ask you is uh, when you write, Um, for a series or a TV series? Is it different than when you write just for the book industry? Definitely. It's a great question. It is a very different set of writing, but I think that they're all at the core, the same thing. It's wanting to tell a story. So when I write a novel, for example, I have a certain tool set that is available to me to write that novel. I can tell you what somebody is saying, but I can also tell you what's inside their head, like how they're thinking about something and how they're looking at that. When I move into writing for TV or for a film, I lose that ability to go inside the person's head and I have to write 
that story in a way that you can understand that and understand the journey that that character is going through without hearing their thoughts inside their head. So that means sometimes more weight has to go on the dialogue. For example, the dialogue has to be richer to be able to tell you something that's inside the person's head. Or a little weight goes on into the way that you've set up that scene so that we can visually get a sense of how that person is feeling. So for example, if you have a scene where somebody has, you know, mourning their loss of their father, for example, well, in the book, you can say, you know, I miss him and you can talk about their feelings about it, maybe even a memory, right? A very brief um, flashback. But in the movie, you might show uh, the way the house looks that the dad lived in, or it's a photograph. You have to try to use a different tool, a set of tools to give that same feeling that you got from the from the book. So I actually like doing bouncing from one to the other. I think it makes you a stronger storyteller because you're using one set of tools here and another set of tools there. And um, in, in the end, it makes you think about story on a deeper level and makes the makes the storytelling become more central to the work you're doing. How important are to create the characters inside a book or inside a series? How important are they? And it, when people begin, well, young artists, they begin with an idea and maybe they're like, oh, I want this to be a best-selling author book because I really want it. Or, you know, <laughs> so what tips would you give also to that people who would like, who are, have this inspiration to be the, those best-selling authors, but also know how to begin and to build a good plot and good characters? Yeah, that's a good question as well, because I always start with character, right? The, if you look at my very first novel, it's called Good Sam. It's a story about a TV news reporter who discovers that an anonymous Good Samaritan is leaving $100,000 cash on strangers' doorsteps. And she's a TV news reporter who usually covers what we call the bummer beat, you know, tragedy, disaster, murders, that kind of stuff. So so the important thing, if you look at that story, is that you have a character in this reporter who's used to covering very bad things and now has to cover what she considers a soft story. So now you have a point of view for this character. It's really essential to start with a point of view. And so this thing that is happening, which you might look at and say, well, that's pretty cool. Somebody's getting a hundred thousand dollars. From her perspective, she's sure it's a hoax, it's a scam, it's a marketing gimmick, right? So we're following her journey from being skeptical and cynical to at the very end of the book, not spoiling the story for you, but at the very end of the book, realizing there are good people in the world and some of them are doing extraordinary good, but don't want any attention for what they're doing. But in order to tell that story, you have to tell it through the eyes of a character that people will relate to, right? We all have a certain amount of cynicism in ourselves. We all have a certain amount of skepticism. We want to see that story and we watch that story because we want to feel how she moves from that place where she is, where 
only thing interesting to her is a mudslide in the Hollywood Hills or a big car wreck, right? To, wow, why would somebody give this good thing? And how did it change these people? And how am I being changed by what is happening here? And when you can put the character through that emotion, then the reader or the viewer, because Good Sam is also a Netflix movie, um, the reader goes along on that journey too. And if she didn't have a specific point of view, she's just a regular reporter. It's like, well, wow, that's really interesting. You probably wouldn't care. But what I'm always trying to do is put my character in opposition to what's happening to them. Maybe initially it's not an opposition. Maybe she thinks like this is the best story, but ultimately there's the constant sense of conflict and intention that are constantly in play here. She wants to find out who he is, right? But all these obstacles will stop her. And in the process of going through the obstacles, she changes. So I think that's really, really essential, particularly for filmmaking. We expect to see a character different at the beginning of the story and at the end. That doesn't mean 100% of the time, but a big part of the time, we want to see that transformation because we as audience members want to go through that feeling ourselves. What would it be like to be poor at the beginning of the movie, at the middle point, win the lottery, and then at the end? What is that like? We all would like to feel that. That isn't a movie I wrote, but is a movie I recently saw where I was really compelled to see how did these two characters, um, how did they change? And if the character isn't changing, we resist those stories. We know that if something big is happening to you, we expect that there's gonna be change. So one of the things I'll often do to begin writing is, what does this character want? What is stopping them from getting it? And then once they get what they want, how are they changed? Or if they don't get what they want, how are they changed? And that is like the through line for that character for the entire movie. Now, right now I'm writing a novel and I have four characters. And so sometimes I forget which one wants what. And they all have to kind of go through, but, but it's essential to really think that way. Yeah, you go back and you say, who wrote this? Exactly, over and over. <laughs> it would be very important to understand from your perspective what would be the steps in order to get closer to someone like you that might decide that something's good or bad or might give it a chance? What do you think would be a good advice? Well, if the person is writing a book, in fact, you know, I think that's a wonderful way to get attention because a book has been fully realized and you know, they could publish that book themselves and get attention for that book. Um, and and uh, particularly a lot of producers are looking at books for material. And the reason is twofold. One, when somebody writes a novel and they have 70 to 80,000 words, typically for an adult novel, maybe 50 to 60,000 words for young adult, they fully realize the entire story. It's gone through hopefully some kind of an editing process mm -hmm. and they have a full story there. And then the other thing that folds into it is that now that it's out there, 
producers can see how people are responding to the material. What do the reviews look like on, you know, on Amazon, if that's where people are buying it, or is it on Goodreads, or is it and some of these platforms where people are always reviewing books, right? And so then we start to see, oh, this is interesting. This is a book that's selling pretty well, but look at the response. People are saying they cry. People are saying they laughed, whatever that emotion is. We as producers always gravitate toward material when we can see what kind of emotional response. We don't just want to hear, oh, it was the best thing ever, because that doesn't tell us much. But like if I cry or I laughed or I couldn't put it down or I wanted to tell my grandma about this book, those are things that tell us that a book has stickiness. And I just want to say, I started my career as an author as a self-published author. The book I mentioned to you that has now sold a gazillion copies, not really a gazillion because I don't know what that number is, but a lot of copies and became a bestseller and then became a Netflix film was first a book I published myself. No one came to me and said, Dee, you're the greatest author in the world. You, We should publish your book. No one said anything to me about it. I had an idea that I felt strongly about, and I said, I'm going to do it myself. And there's so many resources now on the internet um, that are available to walk you through that process and so many different platforms that will make it super easy for you to do that and to release the book and then use social media to get the word out and to you know get people to write reviews and that's all I did i didn't have a publisher behind me i didn't have anything it was just me even though other people told me oh no you need to wait for somebody to get an eight, you need to get an agent and then you have to get the agent will read the book and then they'll have notes and then they'll send it out to publishers and that'll be another year. And then two years from now, from that date, you know, maybe your book will be out. I said, well, I don't want to wait that long. I have something I want to say now and I want to, I can do this. And that's really, uh, to me, the key is getting past the obstacles we set for ourselves to looking at the steps that we're going to go through. If you said today, well, tomorrow you have to publish a book. Well, that's ridiculous. Nobody could do that, right? But all of us could follow a series of steps. Today, I'll do this. Tomorrow, I'll do that. And you work through this series of steps to give yourself the amount of time you need to do this yourself. So I had no idea at that time that that book would, in a very short period of time, sell 100,000 copies. Wow. The usual self-published book might sell less than 100. I had no idea. And people, you know, they always look at success later and, oh, the person knew. They knew or they had special resources or they knew someone. I was a television producer. I didn't know anyone. None of my friends buy my books. They don't, half the time I put their names in the book and then they never say to me, hey, thank you for making me the mayor of whatever town. <laughs> they don't read them. It's not my friends that are reading my books or people in the industry. They're readers and they're people who are looking for stories and stories that are meaningful for them. So the last thing I want to say to answer your question too was, I found something for me that was truly meaningful. I wasn't writing saying, well, I just want to sell a lot of books because I know people who do that and then they don't. And then they're very sad 
And yeah. I would not recommend that. I said, I want to tell a story about good. I want to write a mystery where instead of looking for a kidnapper or a killer, we're looking for someone who's doing extraordinary good because I wanted to explore that. And I wanted you, the reader, to look at that story and say, wait, maybe there is more good in the world than I realized. Maybe I could be good. Maybe I could do something like that. That's the story I wanted to write. And so when it comes from a very clear place like that, I think readers feel that and they know that. If you're just like, well, I just want to tell a story and I'm like a bunch of fun wizards and some magicians running around and everybody, this is super fun because I think it's commercial. Those books never do well because their heart is not in it. If you put your heart in it, it is scary because people can come back later and say, I don't like your book. And sometimes they do, but there are a lot of other people who are like, I understand what you're trying to say and what you say resonates with me. And now they want to read your book and more of your books and they become, you know, your fans. So I would say always start with the story you must tell, the story that will make you want to stay up late at night writing it and rewriting it because it's what your heart needs to say, right? Don't just write like, oh, well, I saw this book sell a million copies, so I want to write that. Write what you know and love and you will find success. Self-publishing or uh, young writers, they might want, what they might be wondering, okay, how much, if I have already an idea and I put it on paper and I begin to write it, how much would I spend or the costs of the publishing? It's a good question. And it always, the, the worst answer is the one I'm going to give you. It depends, but let me walk you through what it costs. So most books now in paperback form are printed on demand. So if you were today to ask me how many copies of Good Sam, which I've mentioned one of my books, I have in my house, I have zero. Only expense you really have is in the preparation of the materials. So the first thing you're writing the book, I would recommend that you work with an editor. It is essential to have this other party, read your book and give you notes and give you thoughts about what's working and what's not. I absolutely think that's a must have. And that um, you can find like a lot of resources for people who can edit your book and they'll charge by the word. Um, they could be a penny a word or two cents a word for how long your book is. That's sort of what that is here in the States. And then once you make those revisions and you're ready, then you would work with a copy editor. And a copy editor is looking for things like, oh, you misspelled this or that, you know, Hollywood Reservoir that you mentioned actually isn't where you say it is, it's over here, or you misquoted this Greek mythology or whatever, kind of fact checking. Then you make your revision again. So you've had to pay now another person to you to do that. Usually I have a different person because I want another set of eyes to find mistakes. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then um, I often then go and work with a proofreader who's even less expensive and they'll catch whatever final mistakes that they may be in, in the copy. Once you've gone through that process, the only other thing you really need to pay for is um, a cover, 
And there are great resources now. They're very economical where you can buy a package. Um, one I know of is called Damanza, D-A-M-O-N-Z-A-A.com. You can buy a package for a couple hundred dollars that includes formatting the book um, interior as well as cover. And you work with a designer and they give you all of those assets. And then you go over to, say, Amazon, one of the biggest places that people start, and it costs you nothing to put it up on Amazon. They might charge you $25 US for making a revision after you've submitted it, things like that. But once you put it up there, it's, you know, there's no cost to you. But the beauty is that once you put it up and it's available on Amazon, then you make um, 70% of whatever the price of the book is. So usually I recommend first-time authors to price their book in the U.S. like $3.99 or $4.99. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, unless you're like a huge author with a big publisher behind you, it's really hard to charge much more than that. And you'll make more sales, which will help you long-term if you keep the price low, but you keep 70% of that and they send it to you at the end, like six. 30 days after the month closes. So um, you can start to recoup your investment with, with the sales that you're making because you're getting the bulk of the money. And when somebody buys a paperback, you don't pay anything for it. They just start taking the cost of making that paperback. So at the end of the day, if your paperback is like, say, $10 or $15, you're going to get about the same as you would on your ebook copy because they they just charge you they they charge it off when the person buys the book so you have really no cost the old days of like i have books in my basement people still ask me that they're like where do you keep all your books and i'm like i have none i absolutely have none the gardener has it yeah Exactly. <laughs> What's your take about this procedure? When people have an idea, they put it in a Bible, they go to a drawings, they find the characters, they texturize it, they put it in digital, and then they just try to pitch investors or producers with a Bible on their hands. What do you think about that? Well, it depends, um, because if the Bible is telling us something about the story and about who those ca uh, characters are and has, you know, a world that those characters live in and a premise for that, that's how we sell a show. So someone like me would, for example, the show, one of the shows I'm making right now, I acquired the rights to a book and then I went to... Um, a writer uh, that I, oh, several writers until I could find the right one and said, here's what we're trying to achieve, you know, come back and tell me some ideas. And he pitched some ideas and we developed that together. And then we put together this Bible that walks through who are the characters? What's the story about? What is, what is uh, every um, episode going to be about? What are the key themes that we'll always see? What are the rules of the world? If there are rules in the case of this show, there are some rules just because it's not a, the kid is not like in their backyard. It's a little bit more imaginative than that. And we put that together. Usually I would say 
you know, eight to 12 pages the most into a deck. And then, you know, uh, we, I don't tend to go to investors because a lot of investors don't really know how television works and they don't understand how much money it's going to take to make an animated television series. Now there are some, I usually don't go that route because most people, when you tell them, well, this thing is going to cost, you know, several million dollars, they don't understand yet how they would get their money back. So I've financed many, many films previous to making animated shows. And one of the things I would do is create a business plan to a distributor or an investor that says, Hey, if you know, if you want to do this film with me, here's how we think you would get your money back. And so, for example, I'll take a film I did called Bernie with a, a movie with Jack Black and Matthew McConaughey and Shirley MacLaine. I think it's on wow. Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's a super fun comedy. But, uh, you know, you walk through them and say, OK, well, in the U.S., we think the sale will be roughly this amount because we've talked to these distributors and this is what they think it will cost that will make. And then in the rest of the world, we think these are the territories where it will sell. And I usually work with then a sales agent that's looking at the property with me and making some estimates. And then here's the math. They'll sell it to uh, this place. And then, you know, these fees have to get paid. And this is how you get your money back. But a lot of people don't have that knowledge, right? So you don't walk around with that knowledge. Believe me, I acquired that knowledge from doing it for a decade, right? So it can be very hard to convince an investor to invest in a film or a series unless they already know how they might get the money back or unless they just want to do it as an angel investor because they care about the message. And that's fine too. But for me as a producer, I'm also nervous about angel investors because I don't want them to invest in something that no one ever gets to see and that they don't get their money back, right? I want them to have success. So I always like to come at it with looking at the material and thinking about where might this be find a home. So for example, if I'm looking at property that's for kids, I pretty much know in the US like where the where the show might live. If it's very educational, you could take it to PBS, but if it doesn't have a curriculum, you would might want to take it to say Amazon. I'm just picking names off the top of my head. And so then start to figure out like who those potential people would that would air or or pay for that if i don't know that then i that's part of my job i gotta spend time understanding who's buying what and all that information is out there so for example part of my routine is looking i'll spend time drive my family nuts and because i'm in kids television i'll go on netflix and look through all the kids shows like okay who made that what was that what was that about and now i'm familiar with it i don't have to watch all the episodes but at least an 11 minute episode and then I'll look at, say, what is Amazon doing? What's PBS doing? So I'm aware of what the market is. So that when somebody comes to me and they say, well, I want to do a show about a cat that's in nature. And he teaches kids, you know, about, you know, leaves and how nature works. I can be like, 
Well, first of all, that show's already been done. It's called Nature Cat. It's on PBS. <laughs> it's not because I'm genius. I just yeah. do the work, right? The other thing that I do is I subscribe because I'm in the kids space to Kids Screen. It's free. I don't pay anything for it. And I read every day their their email. It's, I don't think it's every day, but a couple of times a week and see who's buying what, who's making what. So that I create a sense of what the world is buying. And then I can make sure that my show maybe fits somewhere in there. It doesn't have to fit right in the middle. It has to fit somewhere in there. So sometimes people will come to me and I'm like, this is beautiful work you've done, but it's so outside of the sphere of anything that anyone wants to do. It, it's about um, you know some subject matter that is not very kid friendly or it's uh, it's a bunch of things. It's a little bit of wizards and it's a little bit of goofiness and it's a little bit of puppets over here. And you're like, I don't know who will buy that because it seems like it's not very focused. So that those are those kinds of resources, though, are available to anybody. You could sit down in front of your TV and watch the kinds of shows that you're trying to make and say, OK, who made that? And, you know, what what did I like about it? What did I not like about it? Keep a running um, assessment of that. So when you're designing your thing, even though it comes from your heart, you're not sitting out there thinking, well, I love dragons and monsters and aliens and I put them in this one thing and like nobody buys that. Right. So you want to at least make sure that the thing that you love might be in the sphere of what kinds of shows that people buy. Do you attend any conferences or events? I, I had before um, COVID and I, for example, would go to Kids Green and take meetings there at MIPCOM, which is in Cannes. Um, I would go there to do meetings to um, hear new pitches and that they have a special one for, for kids um, in the fall. Um, because I'm in production now, I don't do very much of that just because I don't even have five minutes to like run and get on a plane. But uh, I certainly did during that that time. And that's where a lot of people come and, and that's how you can meet people because at those conferences, people are just walking around, you know, um, themselves learning about other people's content and so an opportunity for people to get, you know, in front of people that might help them get something made. How is, does it work when you own the rights and how you divide it to both parties, the costs? Sure. So it depends on what the material is um, and who contributed what to it. So for example, um, if I make um a series for one of the streamers, streamers being like HBO or Amazon or Netflix or Hulu, there aren't really profits because they're only going to put it on their channel and they don't make money by putting it on their channel. So they don't give you any profits to, to distribute. There might be some kind of a premium or points or something that they give you for delivering the movie or delivering the series and typically what we'll do is look at the as we are putting together all of the various aspects of the movie or the tv series we'll say okay well who are some of the key people if it was a book that it was based on that person will have a small percentage of that 
Usually an author of the book might get 5% of any profits if there are any. And again, many times there aren't any because they're on a streamer. So an author might see that. And then sometimes the creator of a show, if you're dealing with a TV series, you might negotiate back with them and say, well, yeah, we produced it. We're going to give you this percentage of profits of if there are any. And then usually it stops at sort of author, creator, producers, um, unless there are actors involved and then actors, depending on how famous and how successful they've been, will get some share of those profits too. In the case of animation, which I'm making now, actors don't. Um, unless you're going to use somebody famous, but we usually just use voices and the person isn't famous and we don't give them any profit participation because they're just a voice, uh, not because they're not valuable, but because they're, they're not, you know, Meryl Streep or somebody like that. You know, they don't expect it. So we divide them differently on every show, depending on what we actually think might happen. So many, many successful movies, one of the movies, probably one of the biggest movies I ever worked on was a movie called What Women Want with Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt. Yeah. And that movie did $350 million wow. at the box office, but we as producers never saw a dollar. No. And not even a penny. I often tell people, you can have my profits from, from What Women Want because you have Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt who are very big movie stars, who if there were any profits, they would take them in first position. And so they're, you know, by your own definition of how they define your profits, you're never going to see it, even though the movie made 350 million. So one of the things I often tell people, because people sit around, even here in Hollywood where I live, and they'll be like, oh my gosh, that person must be so rich because they made that movie. And I'm like, no. That's not necessarily true. They may be rich for other reasons, uh, but not maybe not that movie. There are people who get rich, but they're not usually who you think or who says they got rich. Uh, they're usually the famous people and everybody else pretty much, you know, um, might get some sip at those profits, but not very much. Should we expect in the next five to 10 years from Wayne Dancer film? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the market is changing so rapidly, guys. Like as quickly as we think we figured it out, it's changed more and more because we viewers are changing, right? So in the very beginning, I felt like we were, when the first streamers were coming out, we were in sort of a gold rush, right? Everybody's making shows. There were 400 shows in production and at any given time and, and more than that when you count movies, right? There's so much being made, but there is a limit to how much content people can and will yeah. watch. And there's also a lot of content that people are watching that isn't produced by people like producers like us that are user generated. Look, look how much time you spend on TikTok or or YouTube. I mean, the, the growth of that is pretty phenomenal. But where our focus is right now, and I think where we're looking at is to stay focused on what we love, which is 
educating kids and, and entertaining kids, enlightening kids with our materials. So if it's going to be an animated show for preschool or maybe a show uh, that's animated for 6 to 11, or maybe it's a family movie. Those are the kinds of themes that we gravitate toward. And we find ourselves wanting to do them primarily for your major broadcasters or your major streamers or your major studios. I don't think you're going to see a step into the YouTube world that is a place for other people. Um, and I say YouTube, and I mean user-generated. YouTube also pays for content, so I think that could be a possibility. But, but primarily looking at where we can spend our focus and time. Um, long time ago, LeVar Burton said something to me that's really stuck with me and it sticks with me every day that I do this work. And he said, when you do work for a kid's television show, you get to whisper in the ears of the next generation about what's important. And I think that kind of work is really, really important and requires a tremendous amount of discipline and time and resources but it's also really fulfilling. There's nothing in the world better than going somewhere with your show and having a five-year-old run up to you and say, you know, I love space because of your show, or I love yeah. this character. It, yes. it, it's bizarre to say that because I've made a lot of things for, for adults and it's fulfilling, but it is far more fulfilling to hear it from a five-year-old <laughs> Uh how much they love your show and also realize that you could be changing their lives in ways you, they don't even know. You know, the, the person who may figure out how to get us to Mars may be watching my show right now and I'm helping them, you know, inspire them to think big and to imagine all the possibilities. So that's really powerful for me. Uh, we are very, very happy. We're almost ending to the podcast, to this podcast, but I am so thrilled to have you, very happy to have you. And what will be your last words for these young writers and that would like to get into this business? They have the idea, they already crafted, but what do they need to have in their mind to be in this business? I would say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And don't be afraid of failure because certainly even everyone you know that has success has failed. They don't necessarily talk about it all the time and you may not realize it. Nobody just has hit after hit. People have failed and fail every day. And so don't be afraid of the failure because maybe one person says no, the next person says no, but the third person, the one that you're going to ask next is the one that's going to say yes. And I think it was Thomas Edison that said, the only failure is the person who didn't realize how uh, close they were to success. And I think we never know, right? We're maybe we get no's or maybe this doesn't work. Or we think it could be better. And we think, oh, I'll just quit. And it could be that the next day, the phone call you make the next day could change your life. So I'm a big believer and don't be afraid and do what's in your heart and keep working at it. Even if you don't have instant success, instant success doesn't mean that what you, um, the lack of instant, instant success doesn't mean that what you're trying to do isn't important. 
it can mean that it's actually on the way and coming your way. And so I would say, don't give up, don't be afraid and keep working hard.